All right, if you have a Bible, Luke chapter 16 is where we are. Luke 16 will be in 14 through 18 this morning. You can turn there in your own Bible or you can uh, grab a device and scroll on over there. Or we've got it up on the screen behind me here. And if you don't have a Bible of your own, we have Bibles around the room. So on your way out, make sure to get a hold of one of those and keep that. We'd love nothing more than for you to have your own copy of the Bible on your way out the door uh, this morning. We've been in this book for about a year now, November. This is our one-year mark of walking through the book of Luke together. It'll be about a one-and-a-half-year journey of just kind of walking through Luke, the, the, the story of the, the man, the message, and the mission uh, of Jesus Christ. And, and we're in the midst of that larger focus on Luke, looking now kind of more narrowly at the kingdom of God as he kind of ramps up in these few chapters around here, uh, the, the kingdom of God, and we're calling it the upside down kingdom because the kingdom of God causes you to kind of turn your head. It's a little different than people uh, would imagine a king to, to live or to call us to live within his kingdom and and it's really essentially what it looks like when king jesus has his way that's the kingdom of god on a very broad sense the rule and the reign of of king jesus and so here we are in chapter 16 this is week two of three in chapter 16 within the kingdom series within the luke series within the bible which we'll always be in and so uh, i'm telling you luke 16 is probably the most difficult chapter to interpret in the entire book and so um you're working me And I'm up here just trying not to get fired this morning, okay? Um, That's my goal. (laughs) No, more than that, I really really just think that God has something massively important for us. And so um, we're going to do it, Luke chapter chapter 16. A few years back, uh, I had a family member who I will not name, uh, to not incriminate anybody, who posted a few photos on social media of himself and a buddy at a wedding. And my wife and I uh, spoke to... This family member said, hey, that was a nice wedding. Newport, Rhode Island's beautiful. And wow, who, who do you know? Who, whose wedding was that? I mean, Newport, if you've been there, is the most, one of the most beautiful places in all of New England. You've got to go check it out. And we said, That's, that was awesome. Who, who, who do you know? And uh, he said, I, I, don't, I didn't know anybody, I've got to admit. What are you talking about? He said, well, me and my buddy, we were in Newport, and we just thought it'd be fun to dress up and go to a wedding. I said, What? probably inspired by the recent movie at the time, Wedding Crashers, and so they went to the wedding, they got in a few dances, they got in, they got some hors d'oeuvres, and uh, then eventually they were almost busted by an uncle until they slipped out the back corner of this tent on this swanky venue. Wedding Crashers, all right? And a couple of hotheads where they didn't belong and where they could not stay and today I'm calling this sermon Kingdom Crashers. Kingdom Crashers. A, a couple of hotheads or a number of hotheads where they don't belong and where they would not stay. And who are these hotheads? According to the scripture, these hotheads are the, the Pharisees. They're the religious all-stars of the day. In, in fact, if you remember back in Luke chapter 14 when we started off this focus on the kingdom of God, Jesus compares the kingdom of God to a wedding feast or to a great banquet. And in verse 15 of that chapter, one of the Pharisees says, Blesses, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. In other words, he's saying, Cheers to us for being in the kingdom. Here's to us for being a part of this great banquet, this great reception. We're good. We belong here. 
And then Jesus, who was kind of like the uncle, says, hold up. I don't, I don't think that you belong here at all. You're just crashing this kingdom thing. But let me warn you, don't be so sure that you're in. And so we, here we have some Pharisees again, some hotheads again. Look with me at Luke 16. We'll start with 14 and 15. It says, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So we're at a place where the Pharisees are just now straight up ridiculing Jesus. If you remember back to the beginning of chapter 15, they're grumbling at Jesus. But now it's gotten so far that here in 16, they are ridiculing Jesus. They are so disturbed at how different the teachings of Jesus are from what they were expecting of a great rabbi or of even the Messiah. In this particular instance with regards to money, which is ultimately what the whole chapter here is about. He just finished preaching on 13 verses of, of really money. And his teachings are so upside down from the cultural norms that they are just infuriated. They're mocking him. They're scorning him. Who are you, Jesus, to tell us about money? You are living below the poverty level. In fact, look at all these people who follow you, Jesus. They're broke as a joke. They're, they're poor people. In fact, Jesus, you're the joke. They're, they're mocking him. We're in the kingdom. We're obviously the ones who have it right. We're, 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 we're loading ourselves up. We're, we're giving to the poor as well. We're doing all right. We've got all the law of the Old Testament down cold. We're the good people, Jesus. We've earned the kingdom. And what does Jesus say? He says, you're trying to justify yourselves before men. But you can't fool God. For God knows your hearts. God knows. Those little punks over there are not actually in the family and so think back to that Newport wedding. These fellas told you it got busted. An uncle comes up to them and starts talking to them about, Wait, how are you? What's your relation to the bride or the groom? A little bit suspicious. And the, the guys started standing there trying to justify their place here at the, the reception of the wedding and says, we are the bride's second cousins on the father's side. And he goes, oh yeah, I'm the bride's father's brother. <laughs> Uh, and they said, we got to go to the bathroom and slipped out the back. Jesus says, you cannot fool God. These Pharisees were doing the right things, weren't they? But their hearts were off. They didn't really in their hearts want to honor God. And he says they were seeking to exalt themselves, but their exaltation of self is an abomination to God. It makes God sick when you're all about exalting your Self. They were doing right things for the wrong reasons. They were using the Old Testament law and their ability to follow the letter of the law pretty well as a way of exalting themselves in front of other people so that other people would look at them and say, wow, super Christian there. Listens to good music, has a bumper sticker on the back of his or her car or chariot in this instance that speaks to, to Jesus and Maybe they're trying to make themselves feel good. Hey, I'm all, I'm all right, right? I, I've, I've kind of looked at the checklist and I, I kind of measure up. I think I'm all right. 
And I wonder if we've ever been there ourselves. Maybe this is one piece of the checklist for you. I'm here, I'm on Sunday, it's good, right? And maybe we do it out of a desire to look right for other people or for a family member or somebody you're dating. You ever been there? Go to church if it'll please him or her. Or maybe it's just out of a desire to feel good. I just feel good when I leave, and so I, that's, why I, that's why I come. And the reality maybe is that you're not doing it out of a love for God. And if this is you, you may be a kingdom crasher. You may think I'm good. I'm dressed up. I look the part of a Christian. I get a few dances in, some hors d'oeuvres, grab some coffee, shake a few hands, do what I think I need to do, wedding things, churchy things. But you're not really here for the groom. Bible says we're the bride of Christ. He's, he's the groom. You're not really here for him. Maybe you're really here for you. And God knows your heart. Now Jesus wants to clarify even more. And he says, listen, you're, you're obeying the law well in order to justify yourselves. But the truth is, even your obedience to the law can't buy you anything anyhow. And he takes a moment in the next few verses to clarify the Old Testament law. And I think most Christians need this. In fact, this is the number one question that we get when we go through our membership conversations with a pastor. I like the Bible. I don't at all get the Old Testament. (laughs) Am I supposed to obey that? Am I supposed to sacrifice animals? Okay, maybe not that, but am I supposed to do this or this or this or this? I, I don't quite... Get it. I think most Christians need to understand how the Old Testament applies to us. Read with us verse 16. It says, The law and the prophets, Jesus says, were until John. Now, stop there. The law and the prophets, that is the Old Testament, the front half of your Bible. There was no New Testament, so you couldn't call the Old Testament the Old Testament. It was referred to as the law and the prophets. And he says that Old Testament, that Old Covenant, that law, the Mosaic law, was until John, that is John the Baptist, not a denominationally affiliated guy. This is John the Baptizer. He's the guy who baptized people. He was the one long awaited, this last great prophet who would point people to the Messiah, to Jesus. But in history at this point, John has already come, head chopped off, and and, and gone. He's pointed people to Jesus. In fact, when he sees Jesus while he's baptizing people along the Jordan River, he sees Jesus come and he says to everyone, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Did you hear that language? The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And the Old Testament law was a sacrificial system where blood sacrifices were made. In fact, we're going to conclude our gathering today with Communion, partaking of communion, and the juice represents the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed, the great sacrifice. And Jesus says, or John says, Jesus is the Lamb. He's the final, perfect sacrifice. And so, the Old Testament sacrificial system is over. In fact, as you read through the Old Testament, what you're going to see as you really study it is that it keeps pointing outside of the Old Testament, like something greater is coming. There's something else you need to be looking forward to. A Messiah, a king, a kingdom. One like you've never seen before. 
And so Jesus here says the law and the prophets or the Old Testament, they were until John. But since then, if you read on, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. The law was until John. But since then, it's about the good news of the kingdom of God. Are we bound to the Old Testament law anymore? No. Today, God is not impressed by our law keeping. But here these guys are, these hotheads are. Look at us trying to justify themselves by their ability to obey the rules. But the reality is, the law was only phase one, temporary phase. But we're in phase two now. A lot of people, I've heard it said this way, that some people see it as plan A and then plan B. Like A didn't work. And so God says, oh man, what am I going to do now? Um, Jesus, why don't you go down there? No, it's phase one, phase two, kind of like building up scaffolding. Don't get impressed by the scaffolding. Something else is coming, right? My brother uh, works in in Chicago. It's a very clean, very well-presented city if you've ever been there. And one of the things that he does, among many things, is uh, he he manages public art through through the city. And he oversees the budget uh, that that covers, takes care of public artwork. And so annually, he, he gets to do a lot of purchasing and the installation of new art throughout the city. And again, beautiful, beautiful city. And so he, he's had many, many things erected, sculptures and art pieces all around uh, the city. And what he gets to do is he gets to connect with artists and then they'll give them kind of a small scale rendering of what this great sculpture is going to be. And so you go to his office, he's got these cool little small scale renderings of what's actually all over the, the city. And, and so when he gets the, the go-ahead with these projects of, that he's going to erect around the, the city, he'll, uh, he'll go ahead and get the foundation poured for the, the art piece that's going to go on top. And sometimes it has rebar sticking out or some bolts and things that they're going to attach this, this piece to. And that's phase one. He gets that poured and the bolts. Now, my, my brother does that long in advance actually getting the, the art piece there. And one of the things my brother, uh, if, if you know him, he, he just loves adventure. He loves to do crazy things, and he doesn't have kids yet, and so he can travel a lot. And uh, so what he's done is instead of you know, spending taxpayer dollars, if any of you Chicago people have been there, uh, thank you to my brother, right? He, rather than spending taxpayer dollars to go get it shipped all the way from here across the country, he says, I'll just do it. I'll go. He likes the opportunity to take off his suit and tie and, and get in a U-Haul truck and drive to New York City and pick up this massive 10-foot-tall sculpture and pack it up tight and then come back. And it saves taxpayer dollars. And so the higher-ups are real impressed with him for doing that. And he gets to travel and see uh, the city and stuff. But that takes time. And so when he finally gets back, it's been a while that phase one has just been sitting there, the the, the concrete block with some rebar poking out has been sitting there for, for, for quite a while. But imagine if people grow so accustomed to, to phase one that when my brother shows up with phase two, with the actual piece of art, that they couldn't accept phase two because they were so now in love with phase one in their community. They didn't want the amazing work of art that people start protesting. Get out of here. We want phase one forever. Our kids, they've they've been climbing on the foundation and jumping off into the snow. They love it. It's comfortable for us. 
See where I'm going with this? We don't want phase two. We like phase one. But they don't realize that inside of that box truck is this amazing, beautiful work of art. And he has brought in some amazing pieces. He's brought in structures that will provide shade in the hot summer months, covering from rain. He's brought in pieces that will, will spin around and chop up the light and it almost has a strobe light effect in the, in the daylight. Just beautiful stuff. But they don't want it. They're really missing out. Phase one was never intended to be the finished product. The real artwork, the real beauty is not the law, but grace. And it was his plan from the beginning to put on top of the foundation of the law his great masterpiece of amazing grace. In fact, that's always been his intention. As you study through the Bible, in in Ephesians chapter 1, it will say that from the foundation of the world, it was his plan that Jesus would come to display his glorious grace. That even before the law, it was his plan to put on top of it, to top it off with amazing grace. And I've heard people many times say, if God is sovereign sovereign over all things, is he sovereign over sin? Is he sovereign over corruption? Did he make the world knowing that it would be broken, that sin would come? And the answer with biblical authority from Ephesians chapter 1 and other passages is yes. And I know that's hard to swallow, but without sin, there would be no opportunity for him to display his amazing grace. Ephesians chapter 1, from the foundation of the world, it was his plan that Jesus would come and display his glorious grace. Think of it this way. What does grace require? In order to display grace, it requires an offense. We often say, you're being so gracious, you shouldn't have. I've not been great to you. In order to display grace, it requires an offense. So think about it this way. A police officer cannot be gracious to you unless you break a law. (laughs) And then they can let you off the hook and just give you a warning. But you can't break a law unless there is a law. So God wants to wow you with his masterpiece. God wants to wow you with his amazing grace he wants you to enjoy it so in the days of Moses long after sin had already entered into the world he gives us the mosaic law the old testament law to show us his holiness and our sinfulness and our inability to live up to his standard but not so that he could just shame us and make us feel like losers So that he could come in and say, yeah, now that you see it, I want to show you how good and gracious I am. And I love you and I care for you. I love you and I care for you. People tried and tried and tried and tried and tried to keep the law. And they began, as you read through the Old Testament, they began to feel this, just the impossibility of perfectly obeying the letter of the law in our humanity, in our flesh. And even for those who did fairly well, As we see here in the New Testament, they got really cocky about it. And so they didn't obey the spirit of the law. 
even though they maybe obeyed the letter of the law. And the spirit of the law has always been ultimately humility towards God and a desire to honor God, a desire to please God alone. And so everyone's broken the law. Everyone's offended. And now that we're at a place of humility and recognizing that we have not honored God, God says, let me show you what I'm, what I'm up to. Let me show you my plan all along. And that is that I will enter into humanity as a man, Jesus of Nazareth, completely sinless in both letter and spirit of the law. People tend to drift towards one or the other, sinless in every way, undeserving of the result of sin, the wage of sin, which is, from the very beginning, death. The day you eat of that fruit, you will surely die. So he didn't deserve death, yet does he die? Yeah, he dies. They don't kill him. He lays down his life. He's the final perfect sacrifice fulfilling the law so that there's no longer need for sacrifices. Just bloody, awful, disgusting mess. Can you even imagine? Just you get the sacrifice taken care of. You pay for the lamb or the dove or whatever it is. And you sin again. You got to do it all over again. Just awful. We can now trust in the final sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice, that is Jesus. Listen to Matthew chapter 5, 17 through 20. Check this out. It says, Jesus says, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes on one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So what do we do with that? Did you catch all of that? He came not to bash the law and the prophets, but to fulfill it. Don't be offended, Jewish friends. Be encouraged. Christianity, you need a better perspective, guys. It's not a new religion. It's a fulfillment. He also says, therefore, don't relax on teaching or obeying the Old Testament law. We got to walk people through the scriptures. So look back now at Luke 16, verse 17. He says, But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. You see the similarity there? The law is not going anywhere. We need the law. We need the foundation. We must teach it. Go on some churches and they won't talk about it's just evangelical pragmatism. Let me just tell you what the New Testament says about how to to save up money, how to raise kids. And we don't want to touch that stuff because it's weird and uncomfortable and I don't get it. And he says, no, you better keep teaching this stuff. It's important for people to know, for people to understand. We need the foundation so that we can understand our sin, so that we can understand God's holiness, so that we can understand that we don't measure up. In fact, back in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, your righteousness needs to exceed that of the scribes and of the Pharisees, or you will never be able to enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, now what are we talking about, Jesus? How is my righteousness going to exceed their righteousness. And they were the best of the best of the best to keep in the law. They were, they were the all-stars of the faith at, at the time. 
our righteousness could exceed theirs if our righteousness was not found in our performance. Our righteousness could exceed theirs if our righteousness was found in the performance of Jesus. That's why 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 21 says this way. It says, for our, for our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might have the righteousness or become the righteousness of God. That is, in Jesus we have that righteousness. How can your righteousness exceed that of the Pharisees and the scribes and the most holy righteous people of the day? Is when it's not your righteousness at all that you're trusting in. You're trusting in the righteousness of Christ. That's why Colossians will say it's Christ in you. The hope of glory. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Christ in you, the hope of glory. You get it? That's how you exceed it. Some of you maybe had a bad week spiritually. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. Chances are pretty high. Some of you made some big mistakes. And you're distant from God. But you can rest in the truth of the scriptures that says your righteousness is secure if you've trusted in Jesus. That God's not looking at you any differently this week if you took two steps back than last week where you took one step forward. He's not looking at you any differently because it's not about your performance. It's about the performance of Jesus. He made him who knew no sin. He was sinless. He was perfect in every way. So that if we trust in him, we can have the righteousness of God. It's amazing. It's beautiful. Wow. It's spectacular. The kinds of words that people would use when they see art in an art gallery. Never been one of those guys. I'm sorry. Say, it looks like my two-year-old scribbled on a piece of paper. <laughs> and that's spectacular. But for those people who, when they get it, they say, oh, it's incredible. <laughs> and when you get grace and you understand what God has done, you say, that's amazing. When it clicks in your heart, when he gives you new life in Christ, as the Bible says, when he takes your heart of stone and gives you a soft heart of, of flesh, you realize what Jesus has done, and it is incredible. And so in light of that, why do we keep going back to law, Christians? Like the Pharisees, they're not alone. It's so easy to point out the Pharisees. I think there's so many stories about Pharisees because we tend to be Pharisees. We keep going back to the law, to self-justification, don't we? Kind of like, I almost said who it was, kind of like my family member inside of the tent, justifying himself. Uh, here's why I deserve to be here. Can we just be humble and say, I don't deserve to be here? Not a one of us. He made the way. He made the way. Are you hoping that he's pleased with you? Are you living in uncertainty? Are you living in this constant cycle of shame? That is not what God intended. 
From the very beginning, shame has been a tool of Satan. Remember the Garden of Eden? They were naked and what? Not not ashamed. And then they sinned and they're ashamed. They start to cover themselves up. They get fig leaves and create some, some clothes and some cloths for themselves. And what's the problem with fig leaves though? They wither. And you're going to be exposed again. But God says, I don't want shame for my people. So what does he do? The very first animal had to die, apparently. Because he gave them leather animal skin to cover themselves up. And that's a prophetic picture of the death of Jesus that's coming. Because God doesn't want it to wither. He wants it to last. He wants you not to walk in shame. He wants you to walk in the freedom of his grace, his covering for you in Jesus. That's why the scripture says we're clothed in Christ's righteousness. So why do we keep going back to the law? Why do we keep trying to self-justify? I think the obvious answer is because that's how everything else works, right? That's the, that's the system of the world. It's a barter system. You give me this, I'll give you this. If you study hard enough, you'll get the grade you deserve. If you work hard enough, if you work the extra hours, you'll get that promotion that you want. And it's just exhausting. And God says, I know that's how the world works, but let me allow you to walk in the freedom of though everything else works like that. Your faith does not. Your faith is a freedom kind of faith. I wonder if anybody in here is tired. I'm tired. Anybody in here overworked? Anybody in here anxious? Stressed out? He says, listen, the faith, following Jesus Christ, you don't have to live that way. You can know that God looks at you and he sees the righteousness of Jesus. You don't have to constantly wonder, am I, am I good enough? Have I performed? Have I measured up? The world system is exhausting. Fortunately, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. You're going to find this kind of system in every turn of life. But not in the Christian faith. That's what sets the Christian faith apart from every other world system out there for religion. Every other system is perform, perform, perform. Hopefully you're good enough. Hopefully you've appeased God. Christian faith says, I want you to live in freedom, knowing that you did not appease God. God came and did it for you so that if you trust in him, Jesus, you can be right with God. It's upside down, isn't it? It's a lot different. Everyone is in need of grace. Everyone. Even the most polished of the day and the most polished of this day were the Pharisees. And so check out this illustration that Jesus gives. Luke 16, verse 18. Our last verse for the morning. He gives this illustration for even the most polished. He says, hey guys, make sure you catch this, that everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now, here's the tendency. I've heard it time and time again, struggled with it myself throughout the past three, four weeks of just thinking, this is coming, hard chapter. The tendency is for most preachers to break off here and now to do a whole sermon on marriage and divorce and remarriage. 
But I just don't think as I'm studying this that that's faithful to the context. That's not what he was up to at all. Here's what Jesus is doing. Remember, he's speaking to the Pharisees and he chose to give them an example that would show even these religious performers of this day that they were off. He says, hmm, what example can I use to show these guys that they're way off too? How about divorce? Their most favorite Old Testament command to overlook and to ignore. Many of these people, these Pharisees who thought they were extremely holy and loved to justify themselves by comparing themselves to the average person, among these men, divorce was just absolutely rampant. And they would take this twisted interpretation of Deuteronomy chapter 24. And if they found a woman that they preferred more than their current wife, they would twist it a little bit. And they would justify divorcing that woman. And that'll, that'll be okay with God. And that would leave her now to go have to be taken care of and, and, and go find somebody else who would have to marry her who was never actually divorced in the eyes of God in the first place. And so she's still married in the eyes of God. And, and therefore you're just piling adultery on top of adultery on top of adultery on top of adultery. And Jesus says, are you seriously going to sit here and try to justify yourself? Are you seriously going to sit here and think that you're fooling me? You were committing adultery. And I think even for us today, in our easy divorce kind of culture, just compiling adultery on top of adultery on top of adultery, even among Christians, our statistics aren't any better when it comes to marriage and divorce. Listen, Matthew chapter 5 gives us one exception, and that is for infidelity. Divorce stands in stark contrast to the gospel. Stark contrast. Listen, if there's abuse, we're going to do whatever we can do to get you out of that situation. Get you removed from the house. Get you separated. Get you out of that environment. But listen, the gospel, the good news of Jesus says what? It says that Jesus loved me even when I was unlovable. Jesus chose to stay with me even when I was impossible to live with. Even when I was selfish, narcissistic, arrogant, even when I was unfaithful, he chose to stay with me. And so, even though there's an exception in Matthew chapter 5, does that mean that every time you should just get divorced because of their unfaithfulness? What a great example, what a great opportunity we have now to say, I'm going to go above and beyond I'm going to stay in a relationship even when there's unfaithfulness. Because that's what Jesus did with me. I think he gives us that exception. My, my personal feeling is probably primarily to protect women. Jesus is very passionate about protecting women. In fact, when you see him get fired up as a season like this or a moment like this, where women are being abused and tossed around like commodities, he gets really angry. You who are without sin, why don't you cast the first stone? I'm trying to throw rocks at this woman. Get out of here. I think he's protecting women who've been abused because men tend to think with their organs. Think about the book of Hosea. God says, Hosea, here's all I want you to do. I'm going to give you a woman. She's got a terrible name. Her name is Gomer. If that's not bad enough, he says, she's going to sleep around. And I want you to stay with her as an example of my faithfulness. So what Jesus is saying here in this example is Pharisees, the supposed holy ones, you are way off. 
I cannot tolerate how you mistreat women in the name of spirituality. In the name of I'm going to go find another godly one. People love to poke at the Bible and call it oppressive. I'm telling you over and over and over again as I read the scriptures, just constantly protecting women. Incredibly progressive in its day. Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You are all what? One. In a day of slavery, he says, that's bogus. You are one in Jesus. Philemon, accept him back, no longer as a slave, more than a slave. He's your brother. Slavery garbage is not gospel. Male nor female? No, you're one in Christ Jesus. It's all throughout the Bible. I read this here. It's all throughout the Bible. Jesus protecting women, caring for the oppressed. And he's angry. He says, Pharisees, you think you are so holy, but you are way off. And even you need grace. Every single one of us needs grace. Wherever you're at on the spectrum here this morning, if you are very aware of your sinfulness and how far you are from God, or if you think that you have just been really nailing it for Jesus, you start to sense maybe a little bit of that Pharisaism within you, that I deserve this. Wherever you're at on the spectrum, you need, verse 16, the kingdom of God, the good news of the kingdom. There's not a person here who does not need the good news of the kingdom. Stop trying to justify yourselves and receive the amazing grace of Jesus. This beautiful freedom gift that you get. So here's how we finish this morning. If you look back at verse 16 of chapter 16. It says, since John, or since the law, up until John, there is the good news of the kingdom. We didn't touch on this. It's really important. I want to close with it. Everyone forces his way into it. What? Everyone forces his way into it? People wrestle with that a little bit. That sounds contrary to the gospel. I'm going to work for it? No, I think it's just another way of saying Matthew 6, 33, we've been talking about seek first the kingdom. Forcefully pursue the, the kingdom of God. Force your way into it. Or this amazing grace, this work of art, take it by force. Take it passionately. Get a hold of it. 2007, the Singer Lauren Museum was burglarized. They took seven statues out of this museum. And one of those was August Rodin's The Thinker. You know that? The guy on the rock thinking. And uh, just famous, famous statue. And uh, it's just, it's huge. It's just over life-size statue. And they stole it. And uh, it's valued between uh, $3 million and, and $10 million is how much it's worth. And understanding the value of it and the metal within, they, they, they took it. It was this amazing, incredible heist. It took a lot of planning, took a lot of consideration, took a, apparently a lot of passion to want to go ahead and, and, and risk a lot to get this thing. They had to really want it. They had to risk everything 
for it. They had a risk being in prison for it. They, they wanted it. And Jesus is saying this amazing work of art, this amazing gospel built upon the law, you've got to take it by, by force. Does your life display that the gospel is of tremendous value to you? Does your life display that I just, I got to get a hold of him? I'm taking him by, by force. I, I'm pursuing him. I'm seeking him and his kingdom first. Because when you see the freedom and the beauty of the, the law, and I'm built on top of that, the grace that comes from your ability to hold up to the, the law, when you see that, it's amazing. And you say, I just, ah, oh, that's, that's everything to me. I just, I want that. Now, one thing I've, I've never understood are thieves who will take priceless art. I don't, I don't get that. Like, okay, you're going to take a piece of priceless art, and then once you have it, what are you going to do with it? <laughs> like if somebody stole the Mona Lisa, are they going to hang it up in their entryway of their house while the headlines are saying the Mona Lisa has been stolen? <laughs> Look at my new art. I just, Amazon Prime. You steal the thinker going to put it up in your entryway? I don't, how do you, what are you, what are you doing? People are going to see that you have it once you have it. You can't mistake Mona Lisa. You can't really mistake the, the, the thinker. And listen, when you really get the gospel of the kingdom of God, the good news of the kingdom, when you get it, it's unmistakable. It's unmistakable. It's your pursuit. It's blaringly obvious. You're changed. And so my closing question is, is that you? You just see how beautiful and how amazing the grace of God is and you just pursue it with everything. Ultimately, you find out that he was just pursuing you all along. You set it up and it's unmistakable. This is what my life is all about. Passionate pursuit of Jesus. Is that you? Is your life marked by a a taking by force the kingdom of God? That's what I'm all about. And if not, you may be a kingdom crasher. You may think you're in. You may be playing the part. You may be saying the right things. You may be looking all right. But if you're really not full-on, wholeheartedly pursuing the kingdom of God with great force, with great passion. Maybe you're not really part of it at all. So what do we do? Do we muster up energy and resolve and say, well, then I'm going to take it? (laughs) No. It doesn't work like that. It's the challenge of the, the preacher every single week is do I stand up here and call him to go do something? Because that's not the message of Jesus. It's he did something. So it's the preacher's dilemma. And here I am again standing with you in a state of desperation, which is why we pray. And we say, God, would you change our hearts? Would you Come to earth as a man, Jesus of Nazareth. Would you descend from the heights of heaven? 
and get a hold of us and rescue us from the grip of sin and death. From an inability to please you, God. He's done it. And so now we're going to stop and we're going to pray and we're going to say, God, change us. Help us to receive your amazing grace and to treasure the great masterpiece of the gospel of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, would you change our hearts? For those of us who are not a part of the kingdom of God, thank you that it is your desire that we would be a part of the kingdom of God. Thank you that you have made a way. But God, I don't want to sit here and try to manipulate. We need you to do what only you do. That is get a hold of our hearts. And so God, would you do that in people in this room right now? That they for the first time maybe are seeing their inability to measure up. Maybe they've, they see for the first time that they've been trying and trying and trying and trying and hoping and hoping and hoping and hoping that I'm good enough. But the good news is that they're not good enough and that you are good enough. So God, open their eyes to this truth. May they just latch on to the grace of God. For by grace, You've been saved through faith. You can't boast. It's not of your own doing. So may they place faith in Jesus right now. That's you right now. You want to call upon Jesus and say, Jesus, I, I'm sinful. I recognize that. I recognize that I can't be good enough. I can't earn it. But you're so good and gracious that you gave me life by you first dying and resurrecting. And I want to trust in what you have done, your work on the cross in my place. You've built up this amazing new work. Build it up in my heart. The kingdom of God is in the midst of us. God, in this moment, in the best way that people know how, would you just work in their hearts that they might pray to you and turn from sin and turn to Jesus. Turn from trusting in self and turn to you. You talk to God if that's you. And then there's others of us in this room who we know these truths. We've been given new life been born again as the Bible talks about. We're, we're new. We're still trapped in this tent, a momentary dwelling place of the flesh, of the body. And so we still struggle with these earthly ideas of bartering and earning. And maybe you've been there and, and as of late you're just struggling with shame and feeling not good enough and you just need to be reminded of the gospel that, yeah, you're not good enough. But Jesus is good enough. And you trusted in him and he's looking at you. God's looking at you and he sees the righteousness of Christ. He sees Christ in you. So lift up your head. Get back in the game. Keep moving forward. Repent of sin. Turn from sin. It's a life of repentance. 
he loves you and he, he wants you to walk with him. He wants you to walk in the fullness of his grace. You talk to God if you need to talk to God. We're going to respond in singing. God, as we respond, stir our hearts. Just commit ourselves to you. May this be a place of prayer in the song, a place of repentance and turning and trusting. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you stand and respond in song?